going to start a new teaching series on prayer and fasting, something I've been reading about, studying about, and uh, just working on the last uh, few months and some messages God has uh, put on my heart. And I titled this series, Prayer and Fasting, Spiritual Disciplines That Change Lives. And we normally think about prayer and Bible reading as spiritual disciplines, but fasting is also a spiritual discipline. Now, I've seen at home last night, and I got to thinking there, there could be some alternate titles to this prayer and fasting series, not only spiritual disciplines that change lives, but things like those spiritual disciplines that keep us focused on God, that help us obey God, that free us from those sins that have power over us, besetting sins that control us, that help us to grow spiritually. Disciplines that produce godliness and Christ-likeness. Disciplines that help us overcome those fears that hold us back and those struggles that, that often defeat us. And the reason those are alternate titles is because these spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, and you can throw in Bible reading, these disciplines help us do all of those things. Now think for a moment. If these spiritual disciplines can accomplish those things in your life, what does that say about how important those spiritual disciplines really are and how we should work to, to get better at those and to practice them more consistently because they enable us to experience spiritual success. Now, we're going to focus on prayer and fasting over the next five weeks. And I really I have two goals in this series, one for me and one for you. For me, the goal is to be practical, what, is, what does this do in your life? How does it help you? And also be biblical and give you a theological foundation, a biblical foundation for the importance of these spiritual disciplines in our lives. The goal for you is for you to learn about each of them more than you already know and to practice them better than you're already practicing them, for you to do more with them because of the positive impact they can have on your life. So that's the goal for me and the goal I have for you, and that's what I'm praying happens in our lives. Now today... We're going to focus on fasting. And, and by the way, I, I just thought about this. I, I see all this going on. Does that rem so for some of us, does that remind you of the good old days? Huh? How many of you now want to go back to the good old days? I like air conditioning. Thank God for air conditioning. Y'all can uh, edit that out of the television broadcast. <laughs> but let's talk about, about uh, uh, fasting. And I want to begin by asking, how many of you have ever fasted? Raise your hand. You've ever done a spiritual fast? Now, I'm not talking about a diet, a spiritual fast. All right, many of you have. We've taught on it here over the years and encouraged you to, to do that, and, and, and I'm so thankful for it. But uh, when we think about fasting, we tend to think about non-eating, uh, maybe about prayer, perhaps about having a, a spiritual purpose or focus to the fast, and all of that is true. But today I want to, I want to come at this subject from a different angle, a different perspective, if you will. I don't want to talk just about the what and the how. I want to help us have a, a deeper understanding, have a, a deeper reason, if you will, for fasting that is, that is both practical and theological to help you see how it can change your life, how, how learning to fast and practicing fasting in a biblical fashion can have a really significant impact on your walk with Jesus Christ and your growth spiritually. So if you would, turn in your Bible to the book of Philippians chapter 3. This will be our foundational text today, Philippians chapter 3. Now, in, in this passage, Paul is describing the difference between those who follow Christ and those who do not follow Christ. And he also 
is, is getting at the spiritual battle, the spiritual fight that we all experience as believers between doing what we know we should do, you know, doing what is right, doing what Christ's followers should do, and the struggle we have sometimes that, that, that gets our priorities, you know, out of whack and causes us to do those things that we, we know we shouldn't do or we don't want to do or that keeps us from living godly lives. So I want to use this passage, and he, does, he doesn't talk about fasting here at all. It talks about who we are as Christians in comparison to those who are not and, and how that's to show up in our lives. And I want to use this as the, as the foundation to help us understand the role that fasting can play in helping us become what we say we want to be as followers of Christ. So let's, let's look at it for just a moment. Philippians chapter 3, starting at uh, verse 18. Now, look at what he says. He says, and by the way, the words are on the screen if you don't have a Bible and also printed in your notes in the, in the bulletin this morning. He says, many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping. So what he's getting ready to say broke his heart. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Doesn't necessarily mean they're hostile, but it means they're not part of the family. They're not followers of Christ and they struggle to believe the gospel, the cross. They, they even reject it. He said, whose end is destruction. We know that everyone apart from Christ, the future is not promising for them in eternity. He said, whose God is their appetite. Now, I'm going to come back to that. But when he says, whose God is their appetite, or your Bible may translate it their belly or their stomach, he's talking about those natural desires and passions and interests and wants and appetites that all of us as human beings have that are a part of our makeup as a person who lives in a fleshly body. In other words, they, they live for what they want. They live for what comes natural to the human body and not something higher than that. Whose, whose belly or whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. In other words, this life is it. This is your focus. And this sets all the parameters for how you go about living, sets the, the values that, that dictate what's important to you, sets everything. It's just, it's just the here and now. It's, it's this world, the stuff of the, of the tangible now, if you will. In contrast, in the next two verses, he says, believers are different. He says in verse 20, our citizenship is not here on earth. It's in heaven. We're a part of the kingdom of God, and that makes a difference in our lives. He said, and because we're citizens of heaven, we're waiting. We're looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ will return, the second coming. And on that day in verse 21, at the resurrection, our body is transformed. And, and all the weaknesses, sickness and death, all the weaknesses, the struggles and the fears and, 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 and the struggle to overcome temptation and, and the disobedience, all of that stuff that's a part of this fleshly body we, will be done away with because he says in verse 21 that at the second coming, this body is going to have the power of God exerted on it as it's transformed and changed into a resurrected, glorified body that won't have any of these struggles and will not have sickness. So in essence, what he's saying, followers of Christ, you're citizens of heaven. And therefore, you're to have a heavenly perspective. You're to be looking up and have your eyes, your, your life focused on God and his kingdom and his purpose for life. Those who are not following Christ, that's not how they operate. Their focus is just the here and now. It's earthly. And so there's a difference, and that difference is really, really important. Now, it's interesting that in that passage, 
When he talked about those who are not following Christ, he said their God, little g, the thing that rules their life, their priorities, that influences them, exerts control over them, is their bodily appetite. Now, we could talk about how a lot of us, myself included, struggle with appetite with food, right? I mean, I thought about bringing out some McDonald's cheeseburgers and French fries and maybe some steak and, you know, other. I, I thought about having some props out here, some food out here this morning, but I just thought that would make it hard on us, so, you know, I didn't do that. We understand those appetites, and we can become addicted. That They can exert such influence over us, and we develop such bad habits. We're sitting there watching television at night. We're not hungry, but we're, we have this bad habit of eating while we watch television, and so we eat and put on the weight, right? We understand there's other addictions that, that you know, the body craves things, and so people become addicted to alcohol, to drugs. People can become addicted to sex and pornography. Pornography is a, a, a major issue in our country today because of the ease of access via the Internet. And it's destroying lives. We, we understand those kinds of fleshly appetites that exert power and control over, over many people, right? But there's others. The, the natural fleshly desire for fun, for entertainment, and our American culture for sports, the adrenaline rush, the high. And, and those things can begin exerting such a, a control over us, an influence over us. They, they hinder our spiritual development. They get in the way of our obeying God, serving God, growing in Christ. Is that not true sometimes? Some, some people are at ball games as often as they're in church. That's a problem. That's a problem. Spiritually, that's a problem. Entertainment showing up in, in, in the addiction to television. Having to have, have it on whether we're wanting to watch anything or not. How many of you have ever, I've done it, I'm, I'm guilty of this. How many of you have ever sat down to watch television and you spend 30 minutes going channel to channel trying to find something you want to watch and you don't find anything, but you just sit there like a zombie flipping channels, flipping channels. Anybody done that? Am I the only one who ever does that? Because this, let's be honest, it's exerting too much influence and control. This appetite, this natural desire controlling us. And we say we don't have time to pray. We don't have time to read the Bible. We don't have time to study. Really? What about money? What, what about the desire to have control, this, this false sense of security that, that I can control things? Most of us who've lived any number of years have experienced things in life that tell us, really, we don't have as much control as we think or would like to have. Stuff happens. I mean, we had no control over the electrical surge or electrical storm or whatever it was that knocked out the security system and the, and, and the air conditioning. No control over that. We, we don't have nearly as much control as we would like to think we have in life. But some of us are addicted to money and power and, and, and that sense of, can I control things in my life? Applause and acceptance and people liking us and having certain individuals or groups as friends. Some of us become addicted to, to that to the point that we spend an inordinate amount of time, you know, just looking at Facebook. We're, we're more concerned about how many friends we have on social media than we have in real life. 
And these things begin to control us and influence us. And that's a spiritual problem because it holds us back, defeats us. And, and, and somewhere deep inside, we know that. And what, what I'm trying to suggest is that, that if we will practice these spiritual disciplines of fasting and praying and Bible reading in a biblical manner, it can help us to be different can help us to overcome those things. Um, so how do we do that? How do we, how do we lessen the control, these natural appetites, these things of the belly, of the flesh, the, these basic instincts? How do, we, how do we lessen the control they have over us? Well, I want to suggest something. It begins, and, and fasting begins here too. It all begins with our willingness to humble ourselves before God. And humbling ourselves before God means we get on our face and we say, God, we recognize and we acknowledge that you are Lord. I'm not. You are. Biblical humility means I acknowledge that Okay, I, I may be good compared to others, but I struggle and I, I'm not anywhere close to as good as Christ is. True humility means that I understand that I need God's help if I'm going to have radical transformation in my life because I can't do all of this on my own. My, my flesh, my appetite, my body is too powerful and, and we battle back and forth. I really need God's help if I'm going to change and be different. So Psalm 35 verse 13 in your notes and on the screen, Psalm 35 13, he says, I humbled my soul or I humbled myself with fasting. One of the ways we, we uh, experience humility it's through fasting. That's, what, that's the basic purpose of it. It's because we're denying ourselves something to say, God, we need you. Ezra 8.21, Then I proclaimed to fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God. There it is again. To humble ourselves. For them it was overcoming fear. Humility. Fasting is something that can help us Deal with our pride, our arrogance, our sense of self-sufficiency and self-dependence that kind of says, God, when I need you, okay, but, but I'm pretty much on my own. I can do it. I can handle it. And I'm in charge, God. But, but thank you, God, you know, like Santa Claus, for giving me those gifts when I need them. Sometimes we need to humble ourselves. And fasting is a way to help us get in the, the position the position that says, God, you really are Lord, and I'm not. Do you understand, and, and again, to help you get, have a biblical theological foundation for why fasting matters and how it helps, anything in our life, anything we want to do or be, anything we want that is more important to us than what God wants, is in a very real sense a form of idolatry. Because we're saying whatever it is that we want, 
If it's more important than what God wants, then what we want is in, in that place, it's on the throne of our life. And when we put something that we want, something fleshly, something earthly on the throne, and, and it pushes God to the side, is that not the essence of idolatry? See, idolatry is not just you know, carving a little figurine from a piece of wood or some stone or whatever. It's, it's, it's replacing God with anything else. That's, that's at the heart of idolatry. One more passage I want you to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So go ahead and turn in your Bible there, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, what Paul does in this chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he uses a story from the Old Testament that most of you are familiar with to illustrate for the Christians living in the city of Corinth and for us the danger of idolatry and what it really looks like. And then this is going to set the table for me explaining fasting for you as I wrap things up. You remember in, in, in the Old Testament, in uh, Exodus chapter 32, Moses is on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. He's up there 40 days. And during those 40 days, at the foot of the mountain where the people of Israel are encamped, they lose confidence in Moses and in God. They think he's dead. Something's happened. They give up. They lose hope. They want to create a God, a little g, a God for themselves that they can see and they can touch. And so they collect gold and items, and Aaron uses that to fashion a golden calf. They set it on an altar, and the Bible says they worship it, and, and they bring offerings to it. They, they, they had a, a, a feast. And literally, in Exodus 32, verses 6 and following, it says at the end of verse 6, they sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now, does that sound like your bodily appetite? Just those things that just come natural that we just want to do? So they, they sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play, to have their fun. And he goes on in verse 7 to say, in doing so, they corrupted themselves. And in verse 8, the result of it was they turned away from God. You see, when you, when you lose confidence in God and you, you want a God, whatever it is, whatever that appetite, whatever that thing, whatever that idol is, that displaces God, that's how as followers of Christ we end up defeating ourselves, corrupting ourselves, and, and in that moment, in that, that place, turning aside from God. And so Paul writes to these believers. And, and in the first few verses of chapter 10, he refers back to this experience in Exodus and the wilderness, the, the Exodus from Egypt. And what just happened in, the, in chapter 32 at Mount Sinai. And, and he describes it um, in verses 7 and, and following by saying, do not be idolaters. Now, think about this. The problems they had were not the same specific problems the people in Exodus 32 had, but in both cases it was idolatry. In Corinthians, when you, when you read the first nine chapters, the problems they had in that church among, among the fellow believers was they had a lot of conflict. They were arguing and grumbling all the time. They were suing one another in court. There was rampant sexual immorality. 
He says they are carnal and not growing in Christ. And then he gets over to chapter 10 and he uses what happened to the Jews in chapter 32 of Exodus as an example to to give them a warning. And, And he says all of these things, these fleshly things you're struggling with, when you get right down to its essence, it's a form of idolatry. Because you're doing what you want. When you complain and grumble and gripe and, and gossip, that's idolatry. Because it's what you want. It's not what God wants. When there's sexual immorality, that's idolatry because you're following your flesh, not what God wants. And so he takes them back to Exodus 32 and says, I want to, I want to show you something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10... Verse 7, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, referring to Exodus 32. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. He, he quotes Exodus 32, 6 verbatim. Then in verse 8, don't let us act immorally as some of them did in 23,000 fell in one day. He, he said, don't do what they did. Be different. So, their idolatry was one thing. Our idolatry, my idolatry, your idolatry may be something different. But it's all about displacing God and putting what I want or what I feel or what I think on the throne of my life. Now, let me show you how fasting works. I want to ask you right now, can you identify the idols in your life? Can you identify the areas of idolatry in your life? Those things that you want so much is more important than what God wants. We all have them, don't we? Those areas of struggle, of defeat, of fear. Where, where are your idols? What's, what's your idolatry? What, what's your appetite, your stomach, your belly, your fleshly wants that, that exerts too much influence and control in your life? What is it? Where are you struggling spiritually? Where are you disobeying God? Where where do you need to grow and need to change? Do do you know what Moses did when he came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments and saw the people with the golden calf? Do you know what he did? Most of you remember that he threw the, the two stone tablets to the ground and broke them, broke the Ten Commandments. God later had him rewrite them. Remember that? Just threw them to the ground. Some of you will remember that he destroyed the altar, the the golden calf they had built. Some of you will remember that there was judgment, there was punishment, and some of them died. But there was one more thing Moses did. Moses on behalf of the people in their sin, spent the next 40 days in fasting and prayer. Look in your notes, Deuteronomy 9, 18, 19, which also tells the story. Here's what Moses says he did. He said, I fell down before the Lord as at the first. You mean he was on the mountain 40 days getting the Ten Commandments? Now he spends 40 identical days fasting. Forty days and nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water. What is that? That's an extreme fast. Because of all your sins. I was afraid of what was going to happen. And so I fasted and prayed 40 days for you, and God relented and 
did not destroy all of you. Now, let's talk in practical terms. What, what is fasting? Can I give you a definition that I got from a, a Christian author and preacher named Ronald Dunn? I like, I like his definition. He said, fasting is the voluntary abstinence of satisfaction. That can be more than just food, correct? Do you know that in, first, in, in the book of Corinthians, Paul talks about a married couple abstaining from sex for an agreed-on period of time so they can devote themselves uh, to prayer? Fasting can be in different ways. It's primarily food, but it doesn't have to be limited to food. So fasting is the voluntary abstinence of satisfaction from certain physical appetites. What are those things that are so strong, those urges, those wants, those desires that are so strong and maybe too strong and they're exerting too much influence, too much control, and they're getting in the way of my spiritual walk with Christ? What are they? And so fasting is voluntarily abstaining from those things for spiritual reasons. That's a great definition of fasting. There are two kinds of fast found in the Bible. One is public, the other is private. A private fast is just you. You're doing it. It's just something you feel led to do. You alone. A public fast is what I'm going to be asking us to do as a church family. It's where we do it together. In the Bible, there are numerous times when the people of God were called to fast as a body, as a group. That's a public fast. Yes, you're doing it individually, but you're doing it in conjunction with other believers. That's a public fast. And normally when there's a public fast, there's a specific reason for it that everyone knows. There's also degrees of fasting. There's what normally referred to as the, the normal fast. The normal fast is abstaining from food. You still drink liquids. That's the most common form of fasting. Another degree of fasting is, is what I call the extreme fast. That's what Moses did those 40 days, no food or water. I don't recommend that unless you just really feel compelled of God to do that and only after consulting your doctor. Okay? But sometimes people do that. And then a third type of fast or degree of fast is a partial fast. That can take many forms. If you're addicted to television, you may give up television for a period of time and spend the time you would normally watch television serving, reading the Bible, praying, doing self-reflection, whatever. It could be anything. It could be a certain food group that you're addicted to. It may do wonders for some of you to fast from Facebook. Just saying. Nothing wrong with it unless you're addicted to it. Now, how long should you fast? The Bible doesn't dictate particular terms. In the Bible, we find fast listing, lasting different numbers of days. Some We find one-day fast, three-day fast, seven, 21, 40. How many days you fast is irrelevant. You do what God leads you to do. So there's not a prescribed... So, so don't be a legalist about this and say you have to do it this length of time in this way. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
So here's what, what I'm doing. I'm going to present to us a five-week challenge. The day starts a five-week sermon series on prayer and fasting. Here's the challenge I'm presenting to all of us, and I'm encouraging you to participate for your benefit, for the benefit of this congregation, this family of faith. I'm, I'm asking every person here to commit to fast. You, you determine the degree, the type, but to fast one day a week for each of the next five weeks. That's the challenge I'm laying out for every person here. To fast one day a week. You choose the day. You choose the, 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 the degree, the type of fast. You choose the day. One day a week starting this week for the next five weeks. Now, a public fast needs a purpose. Here's what we're going to do. Four of the weeks, I'm going to share with you what the purpose of the fast is. One of those weeks, I'm asking you to pray and ask God to show you what he wants you to fast about that week. This week's fast, I'm asking all of us to fast concerning the lordship of Christ and our submission to his lordship in our lives individually. And pray, pray, asking the Holy Spirit to show us, to show me, to show you, what are our idols? What's your idol? What, what's the, the appetite, the belly thing? What's the, what's the natural thing that's too controlling in your life, that is exerting too much influence in your life? Because in that area, you're not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. What is that? And your fast this week is about that, the Lordship of Christ and your submission to His Lordship and that one area where your appetite is controlling you, is exerting too much influence in your life. That's the purpose of our fast this week. I'm going to ask you starting tomorrow to, to go to my blog on our website. And I'm going to, to, to list on that blog a, a verse and just a, a brief thought to encourage every day. And in the comment section, I want you to share with us. Let's share with one another. Let's have a conversation. Share with one another our experiences. What is God doing in your life? Was it a struggle? Is God revealing something to you? Let's encourage one another because we're all walking this path together. So go to my blog, read the encouraging thought each day, and then in the comment section, just talk about your experience. You don't have to write a book, just a, you know, two, three, four sentences, whatever you want to write. And let's just have a conversation with one another on the blog and go to the church website. It's there. Now, another part of this five-week challenge, not only fasting, Another part of the five-week challenge has to do with prayer. We'll talk about prayer next week, but here's what I'm asking you to do. It's really simple. I'm asking you to pray by name for two members of our family of faith each day, two members you don't normally pray for. I want you to think about people in the Sunday school class or people that you know of in this church. You may know them well. You may not know them well at all, but you don't normally pray for them. Each day, I want you to pray for two different people. So when we gather next Sunday, you will have prayed for 14 people in this church that you normally do not pray for. At the end of our five weeks, 
can just, just hundreds of us in, in, in both services praying for 14 people a week. Each of us over five weeks praying for 70 people we don't normally pray for. Hundreds of us doing that. Can you imagine what that will be like? What God will do in our lives and in this church family? So I'm, I'm asking, I'm encouraging, I'm challenging every one of us, each and every one of us, to fast one day a week for the next five weeks. You pick the day. I even put a place in your notes for you to circle it and choose your day. Or you, it may vary week to week based on your schedule. That's okay. Normal fast, extreme fast for that day, partial fast. This week for the lordship and submission of Christ in those areas where our appetite's too strong. And every day, every day, Monday through Sunday, every day, pray for two people in this church you normally don't pray for, two different people each day. And can I encourage you to have a journal? And if you don't like to journal, that's okay. But if, you, if you're open to this, have a journal and keep a list of the people you're praying for. Keep a, just write down what God is saying to you and teaching you that, over these five weeks. And you may even want to send a, a note to someone telling them you prayed for them today. Their addresses are in the church database that you have access to. Send them a note and encourage them. Wouldn't it encourage you if you got a note from somebody saying they prayed for you today? Wouldn't that encourage Bless your heart. Bless one another. So let's, let's do it together. But ultimately... Ultimately, the goal is individual change, individual growth, individual progress.